0: This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. I'm Rasa Umagali, your host for today's podcast, we are going to be taking a look at the creative administration of MSAs and some of the unique situations that our esteemed speakers might encounter. So, we are pleased to welcome Sean Dean and Aaron Winnell to the podcast, and they're going to be sharing some of their insight with our listeners. So, now by way of background, I'd like to um, welcome Sean Dean, General Counsel and Senior Vice President of Risk Management and Compliance. He leads the legal team at Amitros. He has over a decade of experience practicing law and is known as an industry thought leader in the area of Medicare secondary payer compliance. He was previously vice president of Medicare compliance and policy at ISO Claims Partner. Prior to that, he practiced insurance defense litigation and healthcare law. Sean is on the board of directors and executive committee for Kids Chance of Massachusetts He's been heavily involved with the National Alliance of Medicare Set-Aside Professionals, now known as the National Medicare Secondary Payer Recovery Network. Um, he has served as the chair of the webinar and education committees. He has been on the board of directors and was past president in 2017. He was also the former executive committee member with the Medicare Advocacy Recovery Coalition, Mark on the faculty for the Certified Medicare Secondary Payer Professional Program, CMSP. He's a member of the Massachusetts Bar and is licensed in both state and federal courts in Massachusetts. His law degree is from the Massachusetts School of Law. He also holds a master's in education from Cambridge College and an undergraduate degree from Berkeley College of Music. Welcome Sean. And now Aaron. Winnell, he has worked in MSP for almost 20 years. He is president of Medivest, a professional administrator and MSP services provider. Aaron is also an instructor for the Certified Medicare Secondary Payer Professional Certification Program and a frequent national MSP network contributor. Welcome, Aaron. So, I thought we would take some time during this podcast to talk about some of the unusual issues that might come up in the pro professional administration space. I would love to hear your comments and your thoughts on these issues, and I think our audience would also enjoy hearing about your experiences with unusual requests as well. So, gentlemen, are you ready to begin?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know what I'll say first? Well, first, it's it's good to be here. Um, I recall a a year or so ago recording some sort of intro for the podcast and I don't know if my voice is still used in that. Um, And I think I even laid down a guitar track for it, Erin. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that. They they used to play it at the beginning of the podcast. Um,
1: When it is all put together, they still do play it and it still brings joy to all of our listeners.
0: I love it. And, And I'll say that the second thing is that um, I think if you look at, at the Medicare secondary payer industry as a whole um, it's I think it's viewed as being really competitive amongst its members, but I'll say that um, um, I, I enjoy being in my seat at Amitros because we're neutral. And um, I never like view, even though, you know, Aaron's company does professional administration too. He's one of my favorite people in the industry and at any conference. Um, I make a beeline to Aaron and I'm just like glued to him uh, for the whole conference because he's one of the funniest, nicest dudes um, in the world. So I, when when you asked me to be on the podcast and you said Aaron was on, that's the reason I said yes.
2: Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I appreciate those kind words, Sean, and I'm uh, I'm I'm very interested at this point to go back and listen to your guitar intro. And um it are we talking something bluesy or it's, it's
0: kind of bluesy acoustic. Um,
2: oh it's acoustic. Yeah. And okay. I'm
1: assuming that you're loving Sean back the way he professed his love for you, Aaron. I
2: absolutely love Sean. Um I'd make a beeline to him at every conference, except he beats me to it.
1: We, we, we meet
2: in the
0: middle. We meet in the middle. There it's you, know. you know, Aaron and I have talked usually when we get together, we, we're just goofing around and catching up, but we have talked shot before. So it'll be nice to you know get get it on on tape, I guess, um, to talk about um some of the things that we see because oftentimes we in this space we're seeing the same things and we we're also involved Aaron heads up the professional administration committee for MSPN and we'll often commiserate about the same things. And I, you know, I maybe to kick it off and sorry I don't mean to to take over the conversation, Raza, but like I would say one of the biggest things that I see that I didn't really have a full appreciation of before I came over to the professional administration side was the the extent of the lack of knowledge a an injured individual has when they settle their claim within an with an MSA. And I guess it shouldn't have taken taken me, by surprise, as much, but I, I made some assumptions that oh, you know, the claimants' attorneys are really educating them. There's so much out there. Um, I mean, at least on the internet about this. I mean, you do one cursory search, and you can go down the rabbit hole and find quite a bit of information. And there's the self-admin toolkit and the WCMSA reference guide. And I guess you couldn't assume that that a lay person would be able to, to digest that. But I, I just thought they'd have a little bit more knowledge about it and would be educated. But when an injured person settles their case, they're really just kind of yeah. swaying in the wind out there. I don't know, Aaron, if that's been yeah. your experience too.
2: Yeah, well. I mean, the, the way that we talk about it is um, is they don't, they don't know, and they don't know what they don't know, and um, they don't know what just happened. I mean, across the board with the settlement, period, they don't know what just happened. There was a lot of paper Um, there were some pins, maybe a check or two. um, And uh, what just happened? Where do I go Mm -hmm. to get care now? Who's paying for this? Oh, I had a pharmacy plan. Where am I getting my drugs filled? I was all order before, you know.
1: Well, I think part of the point of the modification, the consent to release form, when the workers comp reference guide was revised to make sure that, you know, people now have to put their initials on the consent form, confirming that they're aware of what an MSA is, what is being submitted, and what you're supposed to do with it. So technically, Medicare did try to rem- remedy that with a change in the consent form. But I would have to agree with you, now that I'm on the plaintiff side and I'm consulting and counseling injury victims, there really is a great deal of misunderstanding when it comes to what is the MSA, what is it to be used for? And we're talking about both in the liability space as well as in the workers' comp space. So let me ask you guys this. This is a question that um, was presented to me over the years since I've been doing this. It had to do with a Medicare set-aside where the person was not yet on Medicare. The Medicare set-aside account was funded. And the question posed was, is it appropriate to have the group insurance payments that are being made for injury-related conditions taken out of the MSA funds, as opposed to them using the MSA funds. What are your thoughts? Let's start with you, Sean.
0: I'd have to go to the specific chapter in the self-admin toolkit, and I don't have it memorized, but it's it's it talks specifically about folks, because um, as we know, if you possess a reasonable expectation of Medicare enrollment within 30 months and settlements over 250,000 inclusive of the MSA, you can submit that to CMS. So it's it's one of the more interesting compliance aspects to the MSP statute, because you typically think Medicare beneficiaries and conditional payments or Medicare beneficiaries involving uh, right. ORM and, and TPOP reporting, but you don't think pre- Medicare enrollment for compliance aspects, but that's one of the areas. And, and CMS is, is pretty clear that, um, that, you are, that, that the individuals to use those funds from the WCMSA account to pay for injury-related items and services that would otherwise be covered by Medicare, even prior to their Medicare um, enrollment yeah. uh, or, or entitlement, rather.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing, though, is that there is no discussion of there being group health insurance available. You know, the key is really to not present these bills to Medicare. So, and if you put in liability, I must say issues, you know, we don't have the workers comp reference guide, the self administration toolkit, hitting that up. What are your thoughts, Aaron?
2: So when we talk about group health, um, it's something that a lot of people don't realize about group health is that group health, some group health providers insurance companies will actually exclude or will consider themselves secondary to work comp settlement proceeds.
1: And is that post-settlement for a post-settlement care? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Okay. They'll do pre-settlement. They'll say, hey, we're, we're not primary work comp, um, but they'll also do it post-settlement. And they will sometimes do it. Uh, you might have, let's say, the uh, the individual who settled their claim has a spouse who's employed and they're on the group group policy, and that is paying for everything. And then uh, some coordination of benefits is done, and they discover, oh, there's there's some settlement proceeds. Uh, they settle this claim. Um, they'll put blanket statements in. You'll see it in the policy next year. But well, blanket- it's
1: definitely true. You know, coordination of benefits is key, as well as the policy language that you know is reflected in the coverage that's being provided through the group health plan, whether it's a spouse's plan or the, in, the injury mm-hmm. victim's plan. So, all right, um, how about a situation where you have a professionally administered Medicare set aside, it's a workers' comp case. I'm just curious, how often do people look to have these funds released because they've stopped treating or what is the discussion around that? Um, Aaron, why don't we start with you?
2: All the time. Um, you would think that the lo- logic would follow that if I don't, um, if I don't believe I need my MSA because I don't, in my opinion, I'm not treating for that injury anymore, then why is that MSA necessary? Um, of course, CMS doesn't look at it that way. Uh, the way that uh, MSAs are um, contemplated. Uh, they there actually used to be a, uh, there was a, a memo years and years and years ago before we actually had like a reference guide and we were doing everything by memos where they came out one year and they said, you know, if, you're, if, you're, um, if your condition improves and your treatment reduces, then you can draw down some of that money off the MSA. And then the very next memo came out and says, oh, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> we're not doing that anymore. Yeah, it's like, oh, we made, a, we made a horrible mistake. Uh, it was a, it was a um, arrested development Type of a statement. Oh, I've made a horrible mistake. We should not have put that in the memo. And um, and so yeah, I, you get that you get that frequently. Or I'm, I'm not you. Or the, the other one that's like uh, akin to that is, hey, this is structured. I'm getting payments every month or every year. And um, uh, I didn't spend all of last year's money. There's a little bit left over. Can I get a Christmas present at the at uh, the end of the year um, because I didn't spend it all? And um, uh, you know the way MSAs are written. They're using kind of a logical approach that you're going to fund this with a flat amount every year, but there's huge amounts of potential fluctuation in the cost yeah. of treatment. Complications have a hospitalization; you'll blow that up, you know. So, um, so yeah, that's a common that's a common question, and uh, it's it's you know it's a problem because you can always take the money out, but when you need it, it's really hard to get it put back in, you know.
1: So, thank you for uh, for sharing that with us. How about you, Sean?
0: Yeah, I mean it's um it's certainly uh something that occurs i i think you know our role as professional administrators to first and foremost educate the injured individual and counsel them as to um uh, the effect that that would have the compliance effect um and also uh, in, in some instances, you know, look to the settlement. Sometimes the settlement's extremely specific as far as the preclusion on utilizing those funds uh, for any other manner. Uh, that That's more frequent in the last few years than I've seen, that the language is definitely tighter. Um, I, I think it goes back, though, to what I said at the outset by there being a lack of education. Um, you know, we, we have a um, a member care team who does a pretty good job with uh, counseling them as to the potential uh, negative ramifications they could have vis-a-vis their benefits um, and, and you know, helping them coordinate care. And a lot of times when they realize, oh my gosh, I didn't realize if I misspent this these funds and you're going to be reporting to Medicare this fact on an annual basis via the attestation process that I could um, not have stuff paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Again that that's the surprising part. It's like, well this is this is what you have the account set up for. It's to pay for Medicare covered items for your injuries. like why would you want to uh, use it to buy you know a hot tub or take a vacation um, or you know buy buy a new car? and and those three things are um, things that that we've been asked for that we just just can't do, especially yeah. the hot tub, especially the hot tub. We get the hot tub question frequently. Hot tubs and pools are really common items that are requested. And um, there's always an attempt to causally tie it to their underlying injuries. But um, I'm pretty good with the Medicare coverage guidelines. I know Aaron is too. I I don't see pools anywhere there. Although there is a trend where I've seen more non-Medicare covered, you know, ancillary allocations on top of the MSA tied to it for stuff where there's open-ended flexibility on how they can spend it. Sure. And if a doctor's going to medically relate a, you know, a, a hot tub or a Peloton or something to it and it's permissible, then they could have them.
1: Yeah, that non-Medicare covered allocation piece, I'm sure, is very helpful in many situations. Mm-hmm. So since you both agree that there does seem to be a lot of confusion about you know, what is the MSA? What are you supposed to be doing with this? what sort of process do you have to educate your new you know um, clients that are coming into the professional administration to explain to them how the whole process works is there an onboarding process that is used to help answer these questions
2: Well there's absolutely an onboarding process um, you know I mean, we're we are information gatherers on the front end right so, um we we try to get as much information as we can uh prior to setting up a case, prior to settlement and all that. Okay. That that kind of gets us ready to go. But without a doubt, um uh the first couple of days, I would say even the first couple of months, there is a fairly intense process of correcting error assumptions, um, clarifying what the sometimes. It's happened before. Um, uh, a uh, private investigator will help us locate <laughs> the claimant who's, whose money we have, who has now moved out of state since they've settled their work comp claim and they decided to move somewhere else and are not aware that we have $70,000 of their money. And uh, we will find them and say, hey, uh, you know, we're we're Medivest, we're administering your MSA and uh, no, well, you have... You have some of my money? Yes, it was, you know, there's a structure set up to help pay for this and pay for that. And um, um, all of the things that you would assume that they would be confused about, they are. And even some things would be very surprising to hear. Um, And, you know, there's, there's they go through a process with it. Oh, I thought this paid for everything. Um, Or my favorite is, um, but my attorney told me, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it isn't that the attorney told them that, it's that's what they heard, um, or they didn't understand, you know. Um, so, but so yeah, it's, it's on the front end, it's primarily education and, you know, trying to set up systems to work with them. So that, um, you know, you have, to, you have to work in tandem with the beneficiary, they have to see providers, providers have to be communicated with, those folks have to be negotiated with and paid. Um, it's all gotta work together. And, you know, you're, you really are working with the least sophisticated person in the entire process.
1: Um, yeah, that's for sure. So, Sean, do you find, you know, that there's quite a bit of onboarding that has to take place and handholding?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially to Aaron's point, um, a lot of it's done up front. Um, and I I think the members who have the most success um, are the ones who are engaged in that onboarding process to, um, to work with us, to coordinate care with their providers. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when they, w- one of the first things I did three and a half years ago, when I came to amitros was, um, I wanted to listen in on phone calls, uh, with onboarding. So I was just kind of a fly on the wall hearing, um, these questions. And it was, it was really eye opening for me. You know, Aaron just said they're the, they're the least sophisticated, um, Individual to uh, as a party to a settlement, and it's really true, and it's it's kind of sad because we have folks who are preparing these MSAs and, and and possibly submitting them, who are experts, and you have the folks in the professional administration side. We know what we're doing, and then you have attorneys who are settling cases, and and the claims folks, and and the judge, and you have all these sophisticated people in this really complex work comp ecosystem, where the effects of this MSA have the most impact on this individual who kind of has no idea what's going on. Like Aaron was saying, like I signed a lot of paper, a bunch of pens Mm -hmm. floating around a couple of checks. And it it kind of breaks my heart to, to hear, um, you know, folks ask those basic questions for someone like me. It's like, oh my gosh, you didn't, you didn't know that, or you didn't realize you couldn't just use all your money or use excess money prior to your annuity kicking in or something. Um, and and it, it's gotten me thinking over the years, um, and Aaron, this won't be any new, this won't be a new question to you, because I posed this to you before, but you know, I think, you know, we're all probably pretty pro pro administ- professional administration, but and, and it's a no-brainer for us, but there's still a pretty big disparity. It's still that that 90-10 split where only really 10% of all these MSAs are professionally administrated, and and I understand that. You know, there might be some that are just relative to a dollar amount, and I, it might not make sense for them to want to do it. But by and large, all these people can really benefit from professional administration, mainly to protect them from themselves and what they don't know. And I'm, I guess I'm posing this question to you as a long winded way of getting to it. But why is there that discrepancy? Why is it weighted so heavily to 90% of these people who are out there? I, I have to guess they're likely not managing the funds correctly. They're probably not submitting annual attestation information uh, or submitting it when they temporarily deplete or permanently exhaust. Um, Maybe they're having some Medicare claims denied um, because of this. But why is it 90% of folks aren't choosing professional administration? I mean, I wouldn't even administer my own MSA just for the record keeping requirements. I wouldn't want to have to do that. Um, I wouldn't have any of my, you know, I always think like, what would I do for my father or my mother who oh, I would never have them do this, but like why? Why is it 9010 is it education? Is it is it just it's not offered at the settlement table?
1: Well, uh, just from the consulting that we do here, you know, a lot of times people just want to have their own money. You yeah. know, it's the thought of putting, giving that money to somebody else. I think that is the biggest fear that they have. So I don't, what are your thoughts, Aaron?
2: Um, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, Number one is that CMS has got, I'll say for lack of a better phrase, CMS is getting their act together. For years and years, you've had MSAs, and for years and years, you've had the concept of professional administration, but not for years and years. Um, Have you had systems in place at CMS to really recognize the fact that hey, a settlement has occurred, an MSA was funded. There's money out there that is primary to us. We need to put in place some policies to make sure we're not paying when we when we shouldn't be, and that that money is primary. That's that is um, and because they have not had quote unquote their act together with regard to that, and obviously you know it's it's a very large organization, um, very complicated. Um, you know, funding is funding things move slow. It's hard for a bureaucracy to move that stuff forward. Um, uh, but because of that, the, um, the apparent risk or the perceived risk has always been low. Yeah. The consequences are not going to be, and then number two visibility on those consequences, um, go to, uh, go to a payer, um, go to a claimant attorney, applicant attorney, um, go to someone, you know, follow your, um, um, and ask them five years down the road, how's that claimant doing? I don't know. We, we settled, um, you know, out of here. And um, you don't know how they're doing. And do you think they even know how they're doing it's like, Oh, okay, well, I got that. Oh, okay. How many, how many folks blow through that money pretty quick? Um, and, you know, the consequences of understanding the complexity of what has just happened, would mean I got money that was supposed to be primary my Medicare plan. Um, Okay, well, I don't have that money anymore. Okay, so is Medicare actually going to, you know, uh, ask me to uh, refund that or pay back Medicare? Or are they going to suspend my benefits? Well, some of those consequences are happening more and more today. And I think also, to an extent, this is just a hunch that CMS is rolling that in a little bit gently, because they also recognize that the beneficiaries are not necessarily as up to speed. And because of that, I think the industry as a whole was really not had on the radar the real um, danger associated with um, just ignoring the post-settlement uh, component of MSP compliance, not just figuring out a number, not just figuring out how much money to give to an individual, but actually understanding that unless the money is spent appropriately, it doesn't accomplish what was it was intended to do. So, um, so that is changing. Um, and we're seeing that. We're definitely seeing denials. Um, and those consequences are there and you know, you're know, you not, there's no uh, coalition of, of beneficiaries out there who are getting together and saying, hey, this is happening to all of us, you all need to be aware of this because they are distributed, they are alone. Right. Um, and so we don't know what's happening to uh, non-administered or self-administered um, MSAs because there's no data on that and there's nobody talking about it. Uh, there's nowhere uh, to, get, to get at it.
1: And just kind of um, to pick up on that point, The non-submitted, you know, you have a large number of Medicare send-asides that are not submitted to CMS for review, but they are professionally administered. So can you give us an idea about, you know, sort of the type of administration that your company provides? I mean, are most of them CMS determinations, or do you have a subset of non-submits and how often are you seeing denials or issues with the non-submits, if any?
2: I'm definitely gonna let Sean go first on that because sure.
0: yeah, I, I don't I don't know the, uh, the breakdown between uh, submit and non-submit as far as we we administered and and we don't we uh, we wouldn't handle administration of that case any differently if it were submitted or non-submitted. I guess the the, the big differentiating factor is that the attestation information that's submitted in really has nowhere to go it's sent into the BCRC, but there's no case control number to append that to to um ultimately trigger uh flagging the common working file to coordinate benefits post settlement to, di- to deny or let the claim go through um so so there's there's that um uh, and, and it's interesting, too, I mean, when we're talking about non-submits, at least it was the, what was it, January and then March or something like that when 3-4 yeah. um, yeah. came in and then was kind of softened up, but there was language in, in the more recent versions that still persists um, that talks about the ability for a non-submit beneficiary to make a showing that the funding was adequate and that the administration was appropriate. I that I might be butchering that language, but that makes me wonder like, oh, so is there a forum or a venue or a process by which the agency will allow someone to make a showing? I mean, I, I personally haven't seen any denials in the non-submit area. I have, as many of us probably have, we've seen a couple letters that are redacted that are floating around that show CMS has certain cases on Uh, Their radar, Um, but I haven't seen any.
1: I mean, CMS obviously they definitely want to encourage that people submit the MSA proposals to CMS for review, and there might have been discussion um, during the MSPN annual conference about you know how Medicare is going to be looking more or somehow trying to keep these things on their radar. So I was Mm -hmm. just curious about your experience with the non-submits at Erin, do you have anything to add on that or?
2: Sure. I mean, uh, we administer a lot of non-submits. When I say non-submits, there's two types of non-submits. There's the ones that don't meet the threshold, that are below threshold, and you're still administering those. And then there's the ones that uh, they just chose not to do uh, submission on it. And uh, just as Sean said, there's really nothing practically you should do differently. Um, With either of those, um, it's basically the same thing. Um, Same thing over on liability side. You know, we administer MSAs and liability. Of course, those aren't submitted. Um, And, of course, they're priced differently, typically, but, uh, you know, the approach you take is going to be essentially the same. And, you know, something that's interesting, an interesting phenomenon, I think, that... um, And, Sean, you can comment on this, too, is, uh, you know, we're seeing more and more non-submit MSAs which I would argue every MSA is a non-submit MSA. I mean, you can write it and not submit it. Um, So they can all be non-submit if you don't want to submit them. Um, uh, But you are seeing a lot of um, MSAs where the approach, you know, whether it be like concern over the fact, okay, I'm not submitting that. Does that create any exposure? Maybe the number is not, uh, you know, up to uh, CMS's review standard, this or that. And then the concern about, well, since we're not submitting it, we think there's just actually a better, um, a better uh, hedge against problems down the road if we have it administered. In other words, we, we're choosing to not submit it, but then have it administered. And so, even if I mean, let's think about let's think about the odds that a number is wrong. Where is it going to be? The odds that the MSA, the nurse allocator, or whoever is allocating, certified, knowledgeable, got a number a little bit wrong on the MSA, left something out, or that the way the money was used for 18 years was uh, self-administered correctly, or maybe off by five or 10. percent I mean, the the variance, the variance on the admin side, on the self versus the pro, the amount of um, uh, you know of variance in the accuracy is going to be considerable post-settlement than it is in the actual MSA writing. So you can take a your. I would argue being in the industry, this is not a sales call, but um, I would argue that, that being a little bit wrong on the MSA and being right on the nose with the administration is far better MSP compliance than being right on the nose with the MSA number, even with a counter hire, and then taking that counter hire and handing it to somebody who honestly doesn't know what an, what, what a formulary is, um, and could can't get the billing arrangements in order to reprice, can't negotiate, um, yeah, is, is a lost ball in high weeds, and by no fault of their own, but it's just, it's a, it's a technical, it's a technical thing. And you're better off. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're better off some submitting if you are concerned about that, but at the end of the day, slightly inaccurate MSA administered appropriately is way well better than an accurate MSA just not administered at all. Yeah. I mean
0: the second, so you can have down to the penny. Yeah. Their last year of life. And it's, it, it, it's just this most beautiful from the heavens msa like just perfect every year funded lump sum it's all there and you give it to the injured person and they go by the proverbial boat then that's it it's like day one it's 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 over
1: and that really is kind of the irony. You have all these people who are pushing for CMS submission, which is recommended and appropriate, but if you get that CMS determination, you properly fund it. If you don't, if you don't administer it correctly, it doesn't yeah, make a difference.
0: It's the pragmatics no. where the rubber meets the road for actual compliance. It's, it's, it's the MSA in, in action. Like you can,
1: absolutely,
0: uh, I, I agree with Aaron there. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's where folks run the risk and it's still why I'm scratching my head going like, well, why aren't, why aren't people, um, why aren't people doing it? And I, and I, and I agree with both of your, uh, the comments you have, I think one, they they do want the control of their own money. It's their money. And, um, the perceived notion that there is going to be an enforcement action on the other side is low. Um, but, but I do think that, um, to Aaron's point, that things are going in the direction where there will be more oversight and enforcement. Um, and it'll be interesting to see like what happens in the next five years. Will there be a post-settlement contractor that's not the BCRC, or maybe it's an extension of the BCRC that's charged with auditing. Um, you know, Let's say on an annual basis, if you miss sending in your attestation, is will, will that flag for taking a look at your spending um, Will will there be uh, more oversight? Uh, just an increase in denials in general. Um, you know, we 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 did that that study that looked at the Resdac data, and I mean it's it's interesting, but it's still it's low comparatively to all the beneficiaries. I mean, over the last twenty years that are out there that have a, even approved MSAs, I mean yeah. the, the the volume's really really low relative to denials, but. Mm-hmm.
1: So here is my last question before we conclude this podcast. Have you had situations where parties are unable to settle a case because the CMS determination is so high, but they want to settle it anyway without funding that CMS number? And they approach you to see whether you can project based on all your discounts, what the future medical will be, and then sort of administer that Pot of money, which is less than the CMS determination. Is this something that comes up often or you've come across over your years as administrators and people in the MSP space? Let's start with Sean.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't think of a specific instance. I know that parties have have asset. I don't know if it's in a situation where CMS has counter-hired. And then they go, well, can we do it with you and know that we're going to get certain levels of discounts? I mean, first thing, we, you know, we can't guarantee any level of discount. Uh, there's too many factors that go into that. I mean, providers aren't obligated to take. And this is a this is another misnomer. You know, these WCMSAs are costed out um, in an applicable comp fee schedule most of the time, unless there's a different methodology used. But it's not like an individual or an, a professional administrator can can waltz into point of service and say, hey, you have to take payment at comp fee schedule or lower. Like the provider can just, you know say goodbye. They don't even have to take any type of insurance or maybe they just take cash or um, so so with that being said, um, uh, I mean we could you know, we're not in the business of, of allocating either or guaranteeing certain prices. We can administer, to the best of our ability to hopefully obtain savings for that beneficiary to extend the life of the fund uh whatever it is if it's non-submit if it's a counter hire that was approved that they want to forego you know finalizing with CMS and funding that amount that's up to the parties to decide um but That's we'll, a
1: risk assessment. It's a risk under. assessment
0: that the parties have to make on their own. Yeah.
1: So thank you for for your view on that. How about you, Aaron, have you been presented with that scenario?
2: uh, Yes, and like several like it. Um, First of all, our guidance on that typically is if you submitted an MSA and you've had it approved. um, It's a bad idea to then say, well, we take your approval. But in order for us to reach a compromise here, we're going to underfund the MSA. And then let's go to the administrator and see if they can make up for that. When we've had similar situations where, for instance, and this is is probably more common than you think, um, an MSA was um, uh, written, submitted, approved um, with a drug in there that was referencing an NDC number that is nowhere available anywhere at any mail or retail pharmacy. I mean, like that NDC rate is so ridiculously low for that drug there's no way we're going to be able to get that right you know and um and had situations where okay so this is uh eight months later you know this has gone back to the attorney this has gone back to the payer the payers ringing us up and saying hey what's going on why is this account exhausting and we're saying look you know the 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 funding for the drug is just completely inadequate because you used an indice number that's not the average it's the lowest and the lowest isn't available in the market, and so we've worked out situations or gone to you know a PBM relationship or something, and says, "Hey, can we try and work something out where we can make this as solvent as possible?" And then we'll work on the medical side and see if we can do something. And then you try and do them a favor, and obviously you're trying to you're trying to keep uh, you know take care of take care of the claimant. Um, but yeah, it's and it, it typically. Um, you another consideration there with an administrator—you know—considering where, where uh, pricing is in the market and how affordable administration is. Um, you know, and a lot of that is because administrators have figured out how to, you know, make the um, the price that the the market pays uh, as competitive and affordable, so it doesn't interrupt settlements. You know, nobody wants to be sitting at the table trying to work this out. And number one, you're talking you're talking to the claimant about uh, giving their money to someone else. And then maybe you're looking at an admin fee associated with that. And do I really have a, back when I started back in the day, you were paying around two grand a year for admin and you would structure I, that.
1: Yeah. I, I have seen $12,000, you know, as the administration over life fee. So the fees yeah. are definitely very different. So so kind so, of pick up on that drug example that you were just mentioning, Aaron. So if you have a CMS determination and they're mm-hmm. pricing out the brand name drug, you know you settle the case, and this brand name goes generic, like significant decrease. Mm-hmm. You know you can't go back for an amended review because I believe one of the exceptions is you know they're not going to look at it if the only difference is the brand has gone to generic. Right. So in that situation, I how would you feel if They came to you and they said, well, can you administer this amount with the generic pricing for this brand name drug in here? It's less than the CMS determination. And I know there are a lot of variabilities in terms of how the other drugs are going to be priced and things like that. But do you have situations where that happens?
2: Yeah. And well, in our approach is is we we will professionally administer the amount of money that you give us to administer. So if, if, you know, by agreement, if you, you know, if you've determined this is the amount you're funding it with, it's your decision, we'll administer it. It may be different than the original MSA, but we're going to administer it. And we're going to administer according to CMS guidelines. And then, you know, at the point of exhaustion, we'll, we'll, we'll provide all the documentation statements and all of that. And, you know, we'll see what CMS has to say. Um, so, yeah, that's um, we can be we can be as flexible as we possibly can be. The important thing to always remember, and I think folks will they look at this and um, they don't consider the ramifications where they'll say like, well, you know, as long as you exhaust the MSA properly, what's the concern if it exhausts early or if it's not quite adequately funded? Like, what's the, You know, what's the problem? Because Medicare is going to become primary payer. Well, Medicare and the claimant are going to become the primary payer. Right. Because you're going to have a copay, yep. So where your MSA is paying at 100%, your Medicare policy is going to pay up to 80%. Now you're responsible for the 20. And was there anywhere in the settlement money set aside to as a contingency for when that MSA fully exhausts and that claimant is now responsible for copays and making sure they're maintaining their premium payment because they now need that benefit now. That's
0: a huge one, Aaron. Part D is huge. Yeah. We've seen individuals who... Weren't counseled really well, and we work really hard on the onboarding process to go. Hey, do you have a? We see that you have significant prescription drugs, and you're a Medicare beneficiary. Do you have a Part D plan? Oh no, I don't. I don't have drugs. Comp is paying for it. So yeah, um, that's or I had my, my spouse's group health, um, or I'm not seeing
2: Medicare approved providers. So when I racked up a big bill, and then it, it gets paid partial because it exhausts, and they're like, okay, we well need to bill the rest of Medicare. Medicare's like, this isn't a Medicare approved provider. I'm not paying this. Right. So making sure that the claimant is actually using doctors who can bill if the MSA does exhaust. There's all those considerations.
1: You know, in those Part D plans, they have those late penalties Mm -hmm. if we're not enrolling in a timely way. So it's great that you guys are trying to counsel and advise people as to what they should do. But I really appreciate the time that you both took to chat with us. And I thank everybody for setting aside some time to speak with us. So stay tuned for the next podcast.